I'd like to welcome you to the show, Women's Voices, Women's Wisdom, this morning. And this morning I am talking with Dr. Malini Devadas, is a mindset coach. She is a scientific editor, and I've known Malini for many, many years. And I thought it would be really great to bring Malini onto the show today because I know that Malini loves to talk, and I love to talk, so it's going to be good fun. How are you going, Malini? Thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks, Kath. Thanks for having me. Yes, I love to talk, so it'll be <laughs> we'll have fun. Hopefully, people listening will also right. enjoy the conversation. Yes, the only issue, of course, is I'm limited to about forty-five minutes now, so we're going to have to put a lid on it then. Okay, no worries. <laughs> so, Melanie, tell me, um, we're going to talk about women's voices, and I thought on the way here, I thought it would be interesting to compare our experiences of growing up and how our voices were valued or otherwise. So I'll just tell you my story briefly and then I'd love to hear yours. So I recall that my grandmother who lived with us, and I loved her dearly, but I do recall her saying many, many times as I was growing up that uh, children should be seen and not heard and that, uh, what was the other one? Speak when you're spoken to and not before. She was very fond of saying those two things even though she'd never told me to stop talking. But I think because she was hard of hearing, I never did much talking anyway. I used to just do listening to her stories, which were fantastic. But, you know, she said that a lot. And I wonder how that affected me. And then the other side of it is that my mum, so her the stories I heard of my grandfather, who I never actually met, <clears throat> but I heard that after the Second World War, like many men with PTSD and alcohol and everything, you know, things went pretty much southwards and so what she had told me is that very often when she as a teenager or young you know young girl teenager went to voice an opinion he would often say things like oh shut up you don't know what the bloody hell you're talking about often things like that and shut her down all the time which I think is quite shocking well it is quite shocking Um, and so I just thought I wonder how much those things affected me and then the other thing is that <clears throat> is that I remember that I always did get told that I talked too much and that I was too loud. And I was often in class, like my school reports often said, oh, you know, Catherine talks too much. Um, you know, she doesn't consider others, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and so I even got a merit certificate, which I took great pride in burning recently, a merit certificate from my grade three teacher. Um, and the merit certificate was for me to trying to curb my talking habits and I'm thinking all these things together are telling me as a as a girl and as a teenager, as a woman, to like shut the hell up. And this is actually making me quite angry as I'm telling you this. <laughs> so I can't wait to hear your story. One final thing for me is that I once went, <clears throat> and this was what really got to me, because as a child, I just probably I just thought it was normal and I never thought about it. The first time I started thinking about it was when I was in my mid-20s, I think. And I went, I was working at CSIRO and I went on a work like... Um, I don't know, a work adventure thing. What do you call it? When you go away and you do stuff that's not in the office. Anyway, um, so I went there and we were planting trees or something. And <clears throat> and so I met a girl there for the first time. I'd met her and she was nice and we were talking and la, la, la. And then all of a sudden, after about, I don't know, half an hour of chatting, she just said to me, you know, Kath, you don't have to talk all the time. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh, and that really got to me and it was the first time I'd sort of realised, I suppose, that that's what people must see me as, someone who just, you know, talks all the time and nothing else. And so I stopped talking, basically, well, to her that day. <laughs> but then I often thought about it, am I talking too much? And through 
And interestingly, through the process, I don't think I let it slow me down that much, but it was always at the back of my mind. <clears throat> and then through menopause, I think when you also have, well, I also experienced a whole lot of um, self-doubt, loss of self-confidence, self-belief, all those sorts of things. Then I started thinking about that and I thought, maybe I do talk too much. And I literally just stopped talking as much. And I just wouldn't voice my opinion when people said, you know, dumb things. <laughs> I just go, oh yeah. And I really just backed it off. And, but now recently, now that I'm sort of come back to myself, I'm like, look at that. You know, like my voice is just as worthy as every single other person's voice. And if I'm going to say something, as long as I'm not, you know, offending someone, <clears throat> I'll say it. So that's my story. So how about yours? <laughs> well, listening to that, I have about 50 different things I'm thinking of all at right. once. Yay. But the few things that stand out for me is I also have a lot to say, but I think there's different types of speaking or talking or communicating verbally. Uh, and so I guess, yes, I, I love talking to people. I love conversations. I think as a child I was quite shy, but at some point I became more confident in just talking to people and I really love conversations, right? So there's that. But also as someone who gives workshops, it is annoying if people are not listening or look, looking like they're paying attention and if they were talking to people all the time while I'm trying to teach them something, I would find that annoying. So I do understand maybe talking in class when you're an eight-year-old and the teacher's trying to teach a class and everyone's talking. <laughs> that, that's what ends up on the report, right? Talks too much. I think lots of us have got that, yeah. uh, had that comment. But I think the difference for me is there's talking and conversation and then there's sharing opinions and there's standing up for what's right and all of those I think are quite different. So I don't know that – like I've always been opinionated. I've not been afraid to share my opinions in small groups of people. It depends on the group. But now, you know, you're on the radio, I have a podcast, there's ways of communicating that and I guess it's – for me, I just notice there's certain things I'll share in certain spaces and not in others – because of a fear. Um, but I was never really, you know, growing up, I was never told not to speak. I don't have any recollection of that. My father's side of the family, all great conversationalists. So, you know, I've had many, many, you know, long evenings of chatting to people in my, you know, over decades of my life. But yeah, I don't recall any messaging like that of not speaking other than maybe not talking on top of other people or when I'm supposed to be listening. I think as a coach, when I did my coaching, uh, training, one thing that I did realise is listening is quite difficult. So listening as a skill is actually quite hard because what a lot of people do is they're listening while the other person's speaking, but they're actually thinking about what they're going to say next. So they're preempting the conversation. And as a coach, silence can be scary when no one's saying anything. You know, a lot of us like to fill the silence with words. So we'll just rush in to speak. Um, and something I had to learn was just to stop and listen and not try and preempt what the person's going to say and think about what I'm going to say, but actually listen to what they're saying and be comfortable with silence. And that was a good, you know, exercise for me just to sit in silence and think <laughs> it's okay if no one's saying anything. I don't have to rush to fill it with my voice. Mm, absolutely. I've had that experience many times since uh, beginning to facilitate women's circles and spaces like that, that silence can be really uncomfortable. And I think that's why people often rush to fill it. And it's uncomfortable, can be uncomfortable for the listener as well as for the speaker. And that's so true what you say that most people actually don't listen properly. They basically just waiting for their opportunity to insert their opinion. Uh, and so that means they're not really hearing what the other person is saying. And it's not, 
they're not only not hearing the words really, but they're not hearing the message underneath the words because they are just waiting to say their next thing. Um, so I think that a lot of opportunities are for healing or for sharing are really missed. And that's why I love the format of a, of a women's circle or a similar facilitated group when effectively only one per- person is allowed to speak at a time. And we even almost kind of police that. That's not the good word, but we, well, we encourage it, I should say. <laughs> what is that <laughs> saying? Speak softly, but carry a big stick. Um, we actually have, you know, like a talking stick or a talking bowl or some sort of object that people hold. And only that person is allowed to speak at that time. And everybody is not allowed to talk. And so they are literally made to listen. And for a while, they might be thinking instead, oh, what are they going to say when it's their turn and all my, you know, all this stuff. But after a while, you know, that gets a bit repetitive and boring. So you actually do you know, you can't help it. You tune in eventually to what the other person is saying and you listen with your whole attention, which means, you know, you're not just listening to their words, but you're seeing their body language. You're just really empathizing with them. And the other great thing is that in that situation, there's no advice given, you know, because the other people can't talk, they can't judge what you're saying. They can't give you advice. They can't give you sympathy. They can't give you anything except their attention and their witnessing of you. And that is a really powerful thing for the person being listened to and it's something that normally does not happen in everyday conversation and it really only happens either in a facilitated space or between two people who understand the concept of holding space and listening. Yes, holding space, holding a safe space is, you know, one of the things my coaching mentor taught me about and she said actually this is the most important part and because it's true, people are not used to being held like that and having a safe space where as you say, it's not just listening to the words, it's watching. I'm, I'm doing most of my work on Zoom, but you can still see people's faces, their body language. You can hear the tone with which they're saying the words. Um, and they feel that they can say anything they need to say, as you say, without judgment. So it's a safe space without judgment. And that's the value. And actually, I was shocked because I thought, you know, when you come into coaching as someone with expertise, and this is why the whole profession of coaching is quite interesting because a lot of people don't really understand what it is, but it's not telling people what to do. It's not giving advice. The purest form of coaching, you know, you don't have to know anything about whatever the problem is that the person's trying to solve. A big part of it is just giving them a space to just talk. And often as they're articulating the issues and, you know, whatever else is happening, they realise what they need to do, but they just needed the space to, Mm. to say that. And we sort of undervalue that because it's not a thing. It's not tangible it's not, um, you know, that we're always looking for results and outcomes and, you know, <laughs> mm. sort of masculine energy, whereas often what we just need is to step back, to think. I just think we've lost the, the art and time to think properly. There's, we're just rushing from one thing to another. I'm guilty of this as well. Um, we need more time to just think about what we've read, what someone's told us, and process that properly, as you say before, we rush to jump in with our two cents worth. Mm, exactly. Um, so yeah, just a couple of things I'd like to touch on there. So one is that you mentioned about people, they just really need the space to talk and they can figure out what they need to do themselves. And that's exactly right. And that's the whole value of, of, uh, you know, listening and a safe space and not being interrupted. Because as you talk, your subconscious is sort of bubbling away there. And as you talk and put into words, it's really important to put things into words and to not just have them circle around your head. It actually has a different effect. So 
uh, that language, you know, thing, it does something in your brain to actually express it in words. And so then when you do it and you're not interrupted and you then can stop and think for a minute and realize that you're not going to be interrupted. So you can actually, as you say, and ideas and solutions and all those sorts of things will naturally come up because that's what they mean. That's what people mean when they say, oh, you have all the answers within, right? Which sounds like some like hippie guru thing, but it's true. It's just that we don't give time and space to hear, to listen to those answers and to let them come up and to let our brain solve those problems, which is what the brain, you know, loves to do. We talked about this last week here on the show with, with Brenda, um, the naturopath I was speaking with last week. Um, and that the brain really likes, is only really happy when it's solving problems and it has something to do. So that kind of thing, I think, is the ultimate problem solving of your own thing. Um, the second part of that is that, you know, active listening, like for instance, to children. So my, I only learnt about the whole idea of active listening, which is exactly what we've been talking about, right? Um, and not talking and, and letting the other person talk. And I realized when my eldest child was in year four, I think, I read a book, a really great book I would recommend to everyone called Buddhism for Mothers, uh, regardless of your, you know, take on religion or otherwise. It just has a really good explanation of active listening. And the best one I think I've read. And so I tried it because, you know, Marlene, like you, I'm a bit of a scientist from way back and we like to sort of see evidence for things which is not to say yeah. that we don't believe, don't necessarily believe things that don't have visible evidence. However, we do like a sort of have a you know natural kind of like scientific inquiry mind. So I was like, well, I'll try this out. So instead of you know my um, child just coming from school and going, oh, so and so did this and blah blah blah, and me going, oh, you know, never mind. Maybe you can try this, or have you taught about doing that, or why don't you take her a biscuit or something? I don't know. So it said. So one night, I distinctly remember that we were sitting on the edge of the bed and, and I said, oh, I don't know, um, you know, she started talking about something and then I didn't say anything and I just, I just said, oh, okay, and I said, I'm, I'm just sitting here and then, so then that gave her the space to like not talk for a minute and then to start talking again and then pause and then start talking and I was just gobsmacked at the amount of stuff that was coming out that I was hearing that I had never, never heard ever since kindergarten had started. So this was already year four, that's five years of school already and I'd never heard a description of a, of, a, of a day or event or thing at school as came out that, that night when I was not talking and I was just listening. And the reason, you know, that she was upset was something or other about writing. They were learning cursive script, you know, or running writing for all the young people listening. <laughs> yeah. We used to call cursive <laughs> script. And anyway, and there was some, you know, she was upset about it and something or other had happened and then something like that. And then just by me not saying anything, she then said, oh, you know, maybe I might get one of those books where you practice the letters or something and I might do that a bit more. And I, and I, I waited till the end and then I said, oh, yeah, that, that all sounds – oh, no, the other things was I did say certain things such as, oh, that sounds frustrating or, oh, that sounds, you know, or it sounds to me like you found that a bit annoying or whatever, you know, just reflecting back what I was hearing. And it's like magic. And then at the end of that conversation, she actually said, oh, thanks, Mum, you're a really good listener. And I was like, oh, my God, gold star for me. <laughs> <laughs> and unfortunately, it's a skill that you have to practice because many times after that, I'm not saying I was then the perfect you know, listener for my children because I haven't been. Many, many times I've been told off by them for not listening. And now, you know, they really get the concept of active listening now. And they say, and this even happened yesterday in the car when there was a talk about relationships and this and that. And I, and I listened and I bit my tongue and I listened for like half an hour. And then I just said... 
I did offer some sort of solution and then I copped it and it was like, oh, I shouldn't have told you anything. Oh, I didn't ask for a solution. You know, I just wanted to listen. And I'm like, oh my God, I've done it again. (laughs) (laughs) I say, really, there's no point offering people solutions because they're not going to listen and take your advice. They're, They're only going to do it if they've come up with it and it makes sense to them, you know, isn't it? That's right. Yes, and and that that um, exchange that you described is exactly the work I do as a coach. So that down to a tee, you know, so it's biting my tongue for me, especially when I first started. You know, I had to just let the silence fall and not <laughs> tell them to do something. Um, and then yes, and then what would happen is they would start talking more because there was silence. So they were processing their thoughts. They would speak more. They would speak more. And, you know, I just think in the end, in 2023, like you and I have been around for many decades, you know, information is there at your fingertips. So I help academics uh, with their writing. If you Google how do I write an academic journal article, it's like a billion hits. There's no shortage of information. Any, Most of the problems people are trying to solve have been written about extensively. So it's not that if people wanted to just learn what to do, they would ask their phone and their phone would give them some answers. Um, they know what they need to do in most cases. They just need to justify it to themselves. They need permission. They need to realise the consequence of not doing the thing. Uh, and as you say, that comes from just verbalising, you know, saying it out loud, saying it to someone else. Often um as they're saying it, they realise it sounds ridiculous or it sounds simple or whatever the thing is that they would need to stop doing or need to do. So it, but it is a skill and it's one that – and I think even more now than ever, like it's it's just harder to have those slow conversations because everyone's in a rush. Like It's hard to find the time. Mm. It's about well, prioritising the time yeah. though, isn't it? Everyone has the same number of hours in a day. It just depends what we prioritise. So when people now, and I used to was guilty of this, I always said, oh, I haven't got time to do anything. But you know, they say, if you want something done, ask a busy person because they're the ones who are more likely to be able to find those little pockets of time and schedule in whatever that it is that, that you're being asked to do. So, you know, so why do you think, Melanie, that people are just so busy and don't have time to listen to themselves? Well, I think there's more distractions. There's more things to consume now. Like, you know, our childhood was really read a book, (laughs) you know, ride your bike somewhere um, or talk to the people in the house, play a board game, Uh, even even something like watching a TV program. If If you're all sitting together on the couch watching a show together, you could have some conversations and, and there's time there. Whereas now people are on their own devices, doing their own thing. Uh, I think we've lost the art of being bored. I also find that, you know, 30 seconds if I'm not doing something, it's easy to pull out my phone and be busy, in quote marks. Um, so I think there's lots of reasons. I also think there's just more expectations of people like we're expected to, um, especially for women, you know, still who's still in general, not speaking in my own experience necessarily, but as a collective, there's still a lot of things women are expected to do, child-rearing, caring, cleaning, you know, maintaining the house, working. Uh, For my clients, you know, they're trying to do their work as well. Their workload is a lot more than it probably was. So I just think there's lots of reasons for just generally feeling like there's no time, the feeling of having no time. Uh, But then if you audit your time, and, you know, those of us that have worked in environments where we had to keep timesheets or had done some kind of time audit, uh, even the phone can be quite good for telling you how much time you spent on different apps. Uh, it can be quite shocking mm. <laughs> to realise that two hours just disappeared and I didn't actually do anything much. 
on the other hand, I don't think we should feel that we have to be productive all the time. So it's just striking a balance. But, you know, the nurturing of relationships, the having space and time to talk, I think it's easy just to take people for granted and just assume everything's fine. And, um, you know, I think your example demonstrated that sometimes these conversations, they need a decent amount of time. We're not going to get to that um, aha moment in 30 seconds. No, so no. It's just, you know, I find, you know, drives are good board games, you know, things where you, you're doing something but you can still talk. Hmm. Those sort of activities make it easier. Yeah, that's true. And what you said about not uh, being productive all the time, I think that's so important and that a lot of people are busy because they feel they have to be busy and not because they actually have to be busy. So they feel, and particularly women, as you were saying, uh, they feel as if if they're not doing something, then they're lazy or they're not, you know, worthy or whatever. You know, I get sort of hear this a lot, like, oh, I have to be doing something. I can't just sit down and do nothing. But sitting down and doing nothing is a super important part of life because we weren't made to be working, you know, 16 hours a day doing stuff. You know, we go get up and, and then go to work and then, you know, you come home and and there's the dinner and the clothes and the you know, house cleaning, as you say, all those things. And guess who's doing most of those? Well, according to published reports, hello, it's still mostly the women. Um, so having, on one hand, there is a lot to do, yes, but that's not to say that you cannot take 10, 15 minutes of a day, not even five minutes of a day, just make a cup of tea or whatever you want, pour a glass of wine, <laughs> and just literally go outside or go somewhere and just sit and close your eyes or just observe the environment and just sit and mindfully sip your tea or your wine and do nothing else. And that is enough almost to start kickstart the nervous system to relax. But instead, we're just doing it to ourselves. We're just hyper alert and going, going, going on the hamster wheel. And no one's going to tell you to stop. Everyone's going to let you keep working. And, you know, if you offer to do something, people are going to say, yeah. So it's we really have to take our own power and responsibility to say, okay, from, you know, um, quarter to nine to nine before I leave to school or whatever the time is, this 15 minutes, this is mine. I'm going to go into this room. I'm putting a big, you know, bugger off sign on the doorway and do not come in. Just let me sit here. And I think that, that could make a lot of difference for people. I should say at this point that we're on SFM, in case you've forgotten what radio station you're listening to. And I'm speaking with Dr. Marlene Devadas about women's voices and, well, and a lot of stuff really. But yeah, do you take a bit of, do you mindfully take a bit of time for yourself every day, Marlene? Well, I, I do. I, I have the luxury of some time, especially during school hours when no one else is at home and I work from home. But I just wanted to go back to what you were saying about the taking five minutes for yourself. So I had a, um, so a lot of the clients I work with are academics and, you know, they're stressed and they're not publishing. So in academia, you have to publish to get funding, to get promoted. And I remember many years ago having a client who, you know, when she got to work, she'd have a cup of coffee, go to the cafe, get a cup of coffee. And then she felt she had to be reading journal articles on her phone. And that was one of the first. So just when you said that, it reminded me that one of the first things I got her to do is just drink the coffee and do nothing else. Mm. <laughs> just 10 minutes. You can do, you know, and it was just exactly as you described. It's just the, the art of just sitting there and being okay with enjoying the coffee, looking around at the people out, you know, enjoying the fresh air. Um, but the other thing I talk about often with my clients is feeling guilty about, so, the way I think about writing is it's the three things that come before writing are the reading, um, 
the discussing of the ideas and the thinking. So all those things happen. You know, you read some papers, you have some thoughts, you talk about it to someone, you change your thought on that, you read some more, you think, you have another conversation. And we've lost the art of many of those things. So people can read, although I would say a lot of people don't read deeply enough. They're just skimming the surface because they feel stressed that they're just thinking I have to read a million papers. We've lost the connection. In a lot of cases, people are working remotely. They're not bumping into their colleagues in the corridor. Um, but the thinking time, you know, it's it's okay to sit and think. Like, actually, that's part of the job. And what I've heard from a lot of my clients is if they don't have words on the page, then they haven't been productive. And so what I try to do is undo that thinking and just say, no, thinking about your work is work. <laughs> thinking about your research is actually being productive, but we've got this idea about what productive means and so a lot of people just look at you know they feel and so they just write any old thing that comes into their head because they then they can say oh I've got 500 words I was productive and so I'm trying to you know help them say no that is not productive (laughs) it's just some words on a page the thinking the deep thinking the reading the you know analyzing Mm. is the work of academia and when you do that properly the writing becomes quite easy Um, but in my own life you know I'm lucky to have that time some might say I spend too much time not doing things <laughs> I might have the opposite problem not quite <laughs> I don't know you're still bringing in the money right yeah yeah it still works it still works, it still yeah. works. yeah I I take so much time to myself at home I mean I have a regular you know tai chi qigong practice in the morning although I did miss it this morning and I already have noticed that I did miss it <laughs> I say regular I try to do it every morning um, and I will often just make because I work from home as well, like you, and I'll often just sometimes if I have a deadline, that kind of thing, I'm guilty of eating my breakfast at the computer or having my coffee at the computer and madly typing. But if I don't have an imminent deadline, I really like to just take that outside. I like to take my breakfast outside and sit in the sun and just not take my phone and just, you know, listen to the birds or talk to the dog or whatever. I'll deliberately take my afternoon coffee or tea outside or I'll take the dog for a walk. The you know, I find that I need to break things up. I cannot focus on editing papers or books or anything like that for any more. I can do an hour and then I have to have a break. And ideally, I would only do 45 minutes. Um, but yeah, I find that that goes too fast. So generally an hour. But if I go over that, I just stop being productive, isn't it? You can't be productive all the yep. time. You have to have the breaks in order to be productive in the in the time that you're being productive. so And I think what you said before about the people doing the deep thinking and thinking about their research and all that sort of stuff, the last place that they're going to effectively do that is sitting in front of their computer. So, you know, yep. going for a walk yes. outside or going, you know, if you work in an office or, or lab, you know, going outside and walking around for an hour and the hell with what people think of you. Like as long as you're actually your boss knows that you, you know, working and you're doing it, like people are so worried about what other people think of them. Um, that they just don't consider themselves and think about themselves. So if you could go for a walk up, if you worked in Canberra, say at, you know, Black Mountain, at CSIRO there, just a random researcher, and you went for a walk up into the gardens for an hour and back, and you just let things bubble around, I could guarantee you that they would have thought at least three new things or three ways to write what they were doing or three ideas for experiments or whatever. It just that's when you give your brain that break, that's when the subconscious will come up and, and give you those ideas. But sitting in front of the computer going, oh, my God, I need to think of something, the last place that anything will come up. Yes, I know. I agree with that. And I also, I always talk about 
rest and relaxation are essential components of living, right? We, um, and when you get enough sleep, when you have enough downtime, and then you have all the other things you have to do as part of a community and a household, there's not that many hours left to actually work. And I agree with your assessment that most people, you know, when people, because I also work with freelance editors, a lot of them are quite shocked when they keep track of their time and they say, oh, I can only work three or four hours a day. And I say, that's normal because it's really hard work. Totally and normal. as you said earlier, we're not, pro- we're not machines that are programmed to sit there and work, you know, for eight hours. Most that deep thinking, reading, you know, that uses a lot of energy and uh, most of us can only manage a few hours a day if that and broken up, as you said. But mm. I agree, the, the, the turning the brain off to let the creative, let your brain do its job to, to think of new ideas, to piece together all the bits and pieces, um, that's the most productive. And actually worrying about what other people think, the irony is a lot of lot more people are working from home these days, but they still feel that they should be chained to their desk. Mm. So it's not even that anyone's going to see them going for a walk, it's just they feel they need to be sitting down at the computer and what I will say to people is if you're not being productive go for a walk like literally it's better to or go and wash the clothes or go and cook dinner or go and um, have a coffee or whatever that is actually better than just sitting in front of the computer feeling bad that nothing's happening and you can't think of anything to write but just do something else at the time and actually my aim is to get people to spend less time working for greater output because when they do sit down they're inspired they're energized they know what they want to do uh, and they can use their time more wisely. So, mm. yes, it is, it's the idea of having not enough time, but actually there is enough time yeah. if we don't waste the time doing well, things that aren't really achieving anything. And especially wasting the time by stressing and worrying and overthinking that you're not doing enough work and using your time effectively. Yes, yes. <laughs> so, um, so on YesFM, uh, I've been speaking with Dr. Marlene Devadas from Canberra, and we have been, well, talking about a lot of stuff, but what we're actually we're going to talk about was um, women's voices, which we have really been because, Marlene, I, I do understand that I don't know if all of your clients are women, but I imagine that a great proportion are. Yes, most of them are, yep. Mm. Do you actually have any male clients? Oh, uh, yes. No, I have had – I've worked with men before, yep. So mm. I do get some. But, um, yep. you know, I think because the people that want to work with me are – usually it's they're lacking confidence, they're not prioritising themselves, um, you know, they've got imposter syndrome. When I work with business owners, you know, they're not earning enough money. So those are common traits for women, you know, if you look at the, as you say, if you look at the population mm. as a whole in general. So they're the people that tend to work with coaches, I think. Yeah. And do you find, is there a difference? Is there a quantifiable sort of difference that you've noticed really obviously between your male and female clients as to the type of things they're worried about and and their way that they view themselves and their work and all that kind of thing about, you know, that they're worried about they're not producing like other reasons the men are not producing the work or that they're working with you, the same kind of background reasons do you think of the women or is it very different? No, they're the same. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's not it's less about gender and more about the type of person. I okay. Think. That, that's usually an underconfidence, you know, a lack of confidence. Um, it's just that, proportionally speaking, <laughs> more of those, you know, there's more women that have those characteristics, I guess. Mm. Mm. Yeah. So I think my work just represents, you know, the breakdown of the genders in my client base just represents the population as a whole. Yeah, yeah. And so what do you think? How how can we get 
you know, women's voices to be more prevalent, apart from, you know, having radio shows like I am. Um, I think that probably a lot of it is, is at home and the way that we do bring up our daughters. Um, and I imagine that your daughters aren't shy of speaking. Um, that, uh, well, it's hard to answer for other people. I think being a teenager is not easy to have your voice heard that's what well, i would say that's a teenager yeah that's right yeah i yeah, suppose not the so best age but trying no. to put yourself out there nine-year-old <laughs> girls are really good at talking like i think nine-year-old girls they're like at the peak really they're so confident generally yes. speaking they're so you know excited about doing things they have such self-confidence they can like do anything and then they get to high school and it's like oh my god people are looking at me and i can't handle this and my hormones are going crazy and i don't want to talk because i don't want to sound stupid and then but then we become older and Many of us get our voices back, but I don't think that we all do. So what do you reckon? How can we solve this world problem, Melanie? Well, I think in a lot of cases we're just sabotaging ourselves. So, yes, there's a lot of systemic problems in the world. I'm not denying that. But my take on it is that, and especially in academia, right, it's a horrible system really, but there's things we can still do so we can we can accept that the system is bad and we can try and change the system, but also we can be advocating for ourselves. So, you know, an example is um, someone who's not writing in my clients' cases or if they're editors and they're not doing the marketing, they're not doing what they need to do. Um, it's I, I just say the system's already difficult, so why not make, we're making it more difficult for ourselves if we don't even put ourselves out there. I think it's just those internal voices this isn't good enough, um, what's someone going to, you're being judged, all those things. And so really it's just doing the inner work. That's what I think more women need to do and through drumming or coaching or meditating or whatever it is they need to do, um, just stop getting in our own way. That will make some difference. That's the biggest difference we can make as individuals, I think. It's just um, while we also have to dismantle the patriarchal systems that keep us, you know, yes, <laughs> go Barbie. a lid on our things. But we need to just let this start with ourselves yeah. because, you know, if you're telling yourself you can't do it and you're not going to do it and you don't want to do it, then it's a bit hard to get help. Mm. As you said, people have to want to change. And so that's, you know, it is doing that, you know, transformation and thinking, well, I do want to publish this paper, so you've just got to kind of decide that's what I'm going to do. Yeah. And, you know, not... I think the other thing is to, um, you know, the fear of judgment is huge. Um, I think for me I've had to learn to just not worry about that. It was hard, you know, obviously. You know, I'm a people pleaser. My biggest limitation has been just wanting everyone to like me. So I know that's been an issue. It stops me from saying things. I've tried to, I'm trying to get past that and just go, well, it's ridiculous to think 8 billion people <laughs> like you. So let's not worry about that because actually there's more pressing things. Like I feel there's things I need to say to help people that need the help and if people don't like it oh well like, I, you know it's easier as you get older to worry less about what people think oh that's I true part of it um so but i would say you know just look at the things you can control within your own life and if that's giving your time away or wasting time or um you know telling yourself you're not good enough when actually logically you know you're qualified start with those things mm. yes and so as you say, people need to want to change. You cannot change anyone, only you can change yourself. But but people also, well, women, let's say, generally, since that's what we're talking about, women also need to know that that is a possibility and that they can actually change because I think the awareness around 
the fact that you make your own reality with your thoughts is actually not that high. Um, and whether they start, I don't know, they are bringing, you know, things like this into school slowly, whether how much impact it has, I don't know, but because it needs to be really the thing I find that surrounds my life. Like I, I just can't like put a, like a minute of mindfulness practice in my day and say, oh, I'm being mindful. No, that's, that's not what it's about. It's about being able when you washing the dishes, for instance, to not be worried that or stressed that you need to be doing something else after you wash the dishes or, oh my God, there's so many dishes. You people are pigs or all the judgment things, but just be like, okay, well, I'll put some music on and I'll just relax and I'll check my body and make sure I'm not standing all tense and everything. And I'll just wash the dishes. For me, that used to be a, stressful thing and I would always have this tension because I'd be like oh I've got to hurry up and wash the dishes and go on to the next thing I found the same thing with putting the clothes on the line and taking them off for some reason I would have this general sense of disease and this sort of tension in my back and in my stomach every time I was putting the clothes on the line taking them off like I have no idea why right but I noticed this and it was getting worse and worse and I finally just thought why is why why is this happening and I I came to the conclusion that I was just because I was overthinking and thinking what else I should be doing next or what else there was to do other than clothes, hand clothesline, I was missing on the fact that my clothesline is surrounded by gum trees and birds and beautiful. It's usually, you know, late in the afternoon. By the time you get up there, the sun's coming through. It's literally a beautiful, beautiful place to stand. And so I just relax and I just take the time to take the clothes off and I fold them up as I'm taking them off and I put them in the right order in the basket, you know, a bit OCD, but whatever, so that they're already in the right order of the people, like the four people's clothes in that basket and they're all in their own four piles. So when they go in, it's boom, 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 here's your clothes. Um rather than just, you know, pulling them all off in a hurry and taking them in and then you have to fold them all up and all that. That's the way I do it. So for me, that surrounds my life and and every every aspect really, whenever I feel my body tensing up, whenever I feel the stress, I think, okay, what am I doing here? How am I standing? How am I breathing? And why am I rushing? Because, you know, there's always going to be work to do and I cannot finish this book in one minute. So why am I stressing about it or whatever like so that's how I kind of view it what do you yeah I think um well I think the domestic chores is an interesting example actually because um you know I think when people there's a feeling of resentment that can come for some of these things like not in your example but you know sometimes people are doing things and actually the issue is that they're annoyed that someone else isn't doing it so then it becomes so instead of dealing with that we just get annoyed, <laughs> and as you say, then it becomes then it becomes res- resentment because I have something else I need to be doing, and it's not that the dishes or whatever it only takes five minutes. It's not that it's it's not actually about the dishes. You know, it's about something else. It's why am I always the one doing it? And maybe that's just because you've always done it, so no one else has thought to do it. And then why aren't they offering to do it? And it turns into a big thing. So I think it's sometimes it can just be there's another issue beneath the surface thing um but then as you say also you can just enjoy the five minutes and it's really maybe it's not a big deal like it it just depends on the circumstances i think but um just the way i think about this is you know either and this is from a work perspective you know it's either do the thing or don't do the thing but sitting there thinking i should be doing this and they're not doing it that's the worst Uh, absolutely absolutely i never forget the words that uh, my friend Rue, who I was in the same lab as me when doing, she was finishing her PhD when I was sort of starting. And she said to me one day, she must have heard me 
um, you know, whinge one too many times about it. And she's like, look, either, you know, write your thesis or, or your paper or whatever. Write your paper or don't write your paper. But don't waste time worrying about the fact that you're not writing your paper and don't feel guilty yeah. about it. Because I was saying, oh, I've got to go to soccer training or I should go to soccer training or I, should, I want to go to the movies, but I can't because I have to do this. And she, I must have been really annoying. And that's, she snapped it one day. She's like, yeah. She said, like, <laughs> either do it or don't do it. But don't waste time by just, you know, yes. worrying about not doing it. And I'm like, wow. And that was like 25 years ago. And I can still hear her, hear her saying that today. Yes, I say that all the time. Like, just go to the movies and enjoy the movie and then decide I'm doing the paper tomorrow or I'm not doing it. Just don't yeah. do it. I don't care if you write the paper. <laughs> Better because I, I work with a lot of clients who come to me that have got six, seven, eight half-finished manuscripts that they've been carrying around in the uh, metaphorical backpack for years, right? So it's like just get rid of it and don't finish it and there's no shame in that. You know, just let go of that or decide I'm going to do it and schedule it in for the next whenever it is going to get done. But, yes, because as you say, we're spending a lot of energy on things that aren't actually productive or helpful. Mm, absolutely. So, Melanie, we're not got long before the finish, the end of the show, but I just quickly want to cover um, the topic of Barbie, right? <laughs> because I, I knew think... you were going to ask me about this. I <laughs> thought you might bring this up. <laughs> because, you know, I thought that the movie was amazing. I loved it. And I've heard criticism, but blah, blah, like just get over it. Like the f- mere fact that, we can go and see a movie now or that teenage girls can go and see a movie now and see strong female characters who fight back. Like that scene where Barbie, you know, bottom gets grabbed on the um, on the rollerblading path and she turns around and punches his lights out, right? I never saw, you know, movies growing up as a teenager or young girl or even as an adult, honestly, where that happened. And instead, if, if women were harassed in that way, it was either sort of, you know, laughed off or the women would and in real life I'm talking here you know you'd shrink away uncomfortably or you know you'd just distance yourself but you know how you would hardly ever turn around and punch someone's lights out and when I saw that scene I was like oh my god yes go Barbie you know and and I um and I loved it I like I laughed my head off the entire movie but it was also very you know I thought quite serious um and I thought it was really great for any men because my husband came along and um long-suffering, some might say, but, you know, he's like, yeah, I'll go. And I went with him and a friend. And just for males to actually see a, you know, pretty realistic view of what it's like for women in, you know, patriarchal society and the, and the, the um, what do I want to say, not the, the um, oh, how can, you know, have you seen the movie? I'm saying it like a... Yes, I have. Right, okay. <laughs> so, you know, you can help me. So when Ken, you know, goes to the real world, he's like, oh, yeah, look, men are, men are cool, you know, like the assurance, the self-confidence, you know, that a man may, not all men, obviously, not totally generalised on, but generally, you know, that's the way the society is. And I thought it was great, you know. I thought, what a rocking movie. And and imagine having these sort of role model of women as, as a teenager growing up to to learn about, even to learn about words like the patriarchy. I never even heard of that word till I was at least 40. Yes. Know? No, I agree. What I, I agree. I think, um, you know, I, I think it tried to do a lot of things. I, I did find it was entertaining and funny. Um, it's also sad that we're still in this place. Yes, yes, <laughs> really very sad. Great. But I agree. I think for younger audiences, it's great to normalise these conversations um, to see, as you said, to see things that were never talked about or were hidden away. Um, but actually what you mentioned about Ken, it's it's interesting because it's like the transformation, right? It's a, I've never thought about this till now, but the fact that he turned up a sort of broken, you know, undercontinent person, saw what was possible 
suddenly realised, you know, nothing changed except he changed how he saw mm. men, right? And with that, he had the confidence. Mm. And I think that's actually a great way to think about the work that anyone that's in that coaching, you know, self-improvement space, it just shows that it's an internal thing, right? Because mm. you just see what's possible, you see, you believe, mm. I can do this. Because yeah. someone, some, in this case, you know, it was like he got permission from somewhere, mm. And then he acted completely differently. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> He's the same person. Exactly. And I think, yeah, so it's, yes, it's just amazing. Imagine what we could do if women were allowed to do all those things. Or, yeah, you know, and had that permission, like you're saying, like, you know, Barbie had, Barbie in Barbie land had that permission and had all the power and the control. And then when she went to the real world, it was like that power went and, and she no longer had that permission. And that, that, that same scene before she you know, punched the guy and she said, oh, I feel that undercurrent of violence. I was like, yes, you know, that's such a real thing. And and I don't think that men in general have a clue. And um, I remember saying, I think once to my husband, about, you know, like walking across the dark car park and you just naturally kind of put your keys in your hand and have it sticking out and you're just, you know, ready for something. And he's like, oh, really? Do you do that? And I'm like, well, yeah. Like, <laughs> just you just do. You just be aware of the fact that it's late, it's dark, it's a big car park. You just don't know. So in some way you have to mentally prepare yourself. And he was just like, wow, I've never even thought of that, like, in my whole life. And I'm like, well, of course you haven't. So, And um, actually, when you, when you talk about that, that's even more reason why we need the 10 minutes to do nothing, right? Because if you're on alert more than you normally would need to be, mm. that's also using energy, right? Yes. It's just, as you say, just that walk you're on high alert. So mm. therefore you need the antidote to that. You need the, at the other end, you need to decompress from that. Yeah, um, that's very true. Very wise words, um, Melanie. Well, I'm going to have to call it to a close here uh, with two minutes to go. Um, but thank you so much for talking with me this morning. It's been fabulous. And I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. And if anyone is interested in finding more about you online, that kind of thing, where could they go to find you, Melanie? Um, they can just Google my name and a million things, not a million things, uh, Marlene Devadas will come up <laughs> or they can just ring the radio station and ask Kat. But, um, <laughs> yes, uh, that's probably the easiest thing at this point. No, people can't really ring the radio station, I don't think. No, but oh. anyway, so it's Marlene, M-A-L-I-N-I and yep. then D-E-V-A-D-A-S. Correct. Correct. Yep. Yeah. Put so, that to Google and you'll see yeah. all my bits and pieces, like all yeah. the websites and various things I yeah. do. But, um, or just say, yeah, Siri, hey, hey, Siri, find Melanie Devadas for me. <laughs> yeah, no, that might be scary. <laughs> no, thanks for having me. It was good fun yeah. to have a chat. Nice yeah. to have some uh, no conversations. Yeah, right. It's exciting also. I just think it's amazing that people can have radio shows now. But, I mean, I just think that's, you know, it's not something, again, like we would imagine as kids, right? No. One day you'd have a radio station. No. Not at all. Like, well done, There's amazing opportunities out there. And thank you, YASFM, you know, Community Radio, who I probably haven't mentioned enough in the last hour, um, for providing this opportunity as well, you know, for people to come on and have the shows and and for um, agreeing for me to have a women's program, which there was never one before. So it's fantastic. Okay. Well, I had a bunch of other stuff to say, but I'm not going to say it because time for the news. And so thanks again, Melanie. Have a great day and uh, we'll speak again. Thanks, Kath. Okay. Bye for now. Bye.